Hey, you guys, it's JJ and Dave, and we hope that you've been enjoying Instrumental. It might not seem like it, but making every episode takes an average of 20 to 30 hours of our time. And we love working on the show, and we consider it our gift to you because we believe these stories need to exist in the world. As we continue to work on future episodes, there are a few things that you can do as well. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute or two to leave a review. This really simple act helps other people discover the show. Another way your friends can discover the show is if you tell them. We really think these stories can change someone's life. But it can't change their life if they don't know about it. So sometimes all it takes is a little nudge from you. Lastly, you might have noticed we don't have ads on Instrumental this season. That means we're not making any money from it. (laughs) That is true. So an easy way to financially support the show is to simply listen to JJ's music on your favorite streaming service. It's as easy as telling Siri or Alexa to play music by JJ Heller. Okay, let's start the show. I'm JJ Heller, and this is Instrumental, a show about the big and small moments that shape our lives. In every episode, my guest and I start near the end of their story and work our way back to the beginning. I hope our conversation reminds you that every second matters because none of us knows which moment will be the one that changes everything. Hey, everybody, it's JJ. Hi, it's JJ. And you are... It's Dave. (laughs) And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Instrumental. They haven't listened to it yet. Well, they're listening right now. I suppose. If you're listening right now, it means that you are listening. (laughs) Don't stop listening to (laughs) Instrumental. (laughs) Our guest this week is Edgar Sandoval. Edgar was born in Los Angeles, but he grew up in Central and South America. Street light, <laughs> people, whoa, whoa. I'm done. Okay. He returned alone to the U.S. at age 18, and he worked minimum wage jobs while pursuing an education that started with courses in English as a second language. And then... He went on to graduate with honors from the Rutgers School of Engineering, and then he earned his MBA at the Wharton School of Business. I think it's safe to say he works really hard. He's a very hard worker. And after that, he spent 20 years in leadership at Procter & Gamble before becoming the president of the largest non-governmental humanitarian aid and relief organization in the world. In the entire world? Yes. And that happened at the end of 2018. So he's the guy responsible for guiding the mission of 50,000 staff members and volunteers. That's a lot. We are so grateful that he took some time out of his very busy schedule to sit down and share his story with us. So what are we waiting for? I don't know what we're waiting for. Let's hear it. Maybe it's this, this, this part. Just a small town boy. Growing up in South America. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Let's hear it. 
Act 3, Chosen. Before he was the president of World Vision, Edgar served in the role of chief operating officer. Even though World Vision serves millions of impoverished people in nearly 100 countries, in 2016, Edgar wondered if there was a way to do even more. We have over 3 million sponsored kids, but you can imagine there's multiple millions around the world that don't have a sponsor. Mm -hmm. And so it is those kids that don't have sponsors, that don't have opportunity. Those are the ones that we are seeking to, to reach, even as we are eternally grateful to our sponsors for the 3 million or so that we reach today. Yeah. Right. And so I was on an airplane, and I love worship music, so I put my worship music on. And as I was listening to this worship song, on my mind, I was just seeing thousands of photos of kids that were not being sponsors. I couldn't make up their faces. Their faces were blurry, but I just knew that there were hundreds of thousands of millions of kids that were going without a sponsor and therefore without the opportunity to fulfill uh, their God-given potential. And there at a, you know, in an airplane on the way back from somewhere, I just started weeping and I started, I think it was the Holy Spirit weeping with me about the responsibility that we had to get more people to turn their gaze towards the poor. But at the same time, even though I was feeling the weight of responsibility, I was at the same time feeling that the Lord was saying, this is bigger than you, Edgar. You can't do this on your own. There's millions of them. These are my kids. This is my work. That is a moment that I'll never forget because I, you know, three years later, three years later, okay, we actually launched the Chosen campaign. About six months after that experience on the plane, we started the process to come up with a big breakthrough idea. But for a couple of years, we didn't have something that we thought was big and breakthrough. Until, until, in one of the meetings, someone asked a question. <laughs> and the question was, what if, what if we put the power to choose a sponsor into the children's hands? And it was a simple but very profound question. It's a profound question because it acknowledges the God-given dignity of children and their ability to create change for themselves, mm -hmm. which is something that World Vision strongly believes in. In fact, we believe in empowering communities to help themselves lift themselves out of poverty. We had this nugget of an idea so we took it to a couple of churches and we did a couple of pilots. And the way World Vision has done sponsorship for 70 years is the sponsors choose the child. They, on a Sunday, the pastor would speak about World Vision and about the life-changing, transformational experience that a sponsorship can be for the children and the communities that we serve. The pastor would ask the congregation to go out to the lobby and to pick a photo of the child they would like to sponsor. But this time with the chosen model, the pastor actually says, now go out to the lobby and if you want to be chosen, you will have your photo taken. And so we set up photo booth in the lobby and it's amazing to see the lines of people just waiting mm -hmm. to have their photo taken because those photos are then going to be 
carried the next day, the pastor will travel to a developing country into, into a poor community with all those photos. And the very first event, the pastor traveled to Mawala, Kenya. And on Wednesday, there was a huge event in the community where all the children, hundreds of children, got to choose their sponsor. The, the photos of the families are put in a sort of clothesline, and the children go up to the clothesline, they gaze at the photos, and they choose the one they want, and they choose their sponsor. <laughs> and it is really amazing to see. And, and, and the parents tell us just how excited the kids are to be the ones choosing. Mm. And then so the pastor comes back, and the second Sunday, we do what's called the reveal event. Does all of this happen in one week? This all happens in one week. So wow. the, the pastor says, hey, go get your photo taken. The yeah. next day, the pastor flies across the world, right? watches these children choose their sponsor, right? flies back with the photos. Yes. And the very next Sunday, they bring these packages to the, the sponsors. That's exactly right. That's incredible. It, it, it's a tremendous, it's a wonderful experience. The pastors tell us that they love the experience of going out to the field and not only witnessing the chosen event, but being with the community and understanding how critical it is for these communities to get this help. And in the reveal, every family who has agreed to be chosen, they receive a sealed envelope with the word chosen on the envelope. And mm -hmm. when they open the envelope, for the first time, they will see the face of the child that chose them. Mm -hmm. But not only that, that child is holding the photo that they took the previous Sunday <laughs> in <Wow>. her hands, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is a, a very, a very emotional thing. My wife and I, we've been chosen twice. We've been chosen once in Guatemala. We've been chosen once in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. And every time the anticipation of knowing who chose us is a really cool thing. That must be so powerful for the sponsor family because yeah. you hear there's so much need around the world. There are all of these children who don't have what they need. And like our brains can't really process that. Like we need right. a personal connection. And so right. for this family to see there is a little specific child somewhere in the world holding a photo of them, there has to be some sort of automatic, powerful connection to that child. That's so well said, JJ. We are finding exactly that. There is some skepticism about, well, are those children real? Right. Are those children real? So this really cuts through all of that. Yeah, not only are they real, they're holding your photo right. and your pastor was there to witness it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You had come from Procter & Gamble, where you had been working with these advertising agencies who had put together multiple pitches for these hopefully world-changing, culture-shaping advertising campaigns. And then you come to World Vision. You're the president. You get to lead this campaign that is basically led by an internal group of people. You don't have necessarily the manpower to come up with all of these different ideas to test. Like you have to be very selective. And as you unroll this in these test churches and start to see the results, what is happening within that small team who came up with the concept of chosen to begin with? 
the, the teams were so excited. They were texting from the church. Everyone's reaction was, wow, this is bigger than we thought. And so the level of excitement was, was tremendous. Relatively speaking, we're a smaller organization than a big corporation. So the same people that were in the room thinking about the idea, they actually went to the church to experience it. And our prayers were being answered. Our prayers are more people interested in helping the most vulnerable people around the world. Mm. And we were witnessing that. Mm. We were witnessing that as the response was twice, three times, four times what we normally get. Wow. But beyond that, what we didn't expect is the intrinsic reward in being chosen Mm. and the the mutually rewarding experience that comes as a result of that. And so we like to say that chosen is really about mutual transformation. Mm. Um, And God uses um, those children to do a work in you. I did go to a chosen event. My wife and I had a photo taken here, and then I traveled to Bangladesh where I saw a community welcome World Vision with open arms. I saw many children go up to the clothesline and choose their sponsor, and, and Lace and I are right there as well until Masrafi, the young boy who chose us, picked us from the clothesline, and mm. it was a really cool thing to see as well. After he chose you, did you go kind of like, Hey, does he look familiar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. We did. We had our photo taken. I t- I spoke to to his mom who was with him. Uh, he was very very young, so sometimes their parents help. Yeah, which I think is great. Also, yeah. I mean, to be chosen by mom is a great it's a great thing as well, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So I talked to his parents and uh, and I heard a little bit about their story and how truly ultra poor they are. Her husband is uh, is a day laborer. He works in the uh, building sort of industry, but you know he makes about a dollar ninety a day mm-hmm. when he can. And so the fact that he was going to be sponsored was a huge relief and source of joy for mom. Hmm. You had the experience at Procter and Gamble and. You had an incredibly fulfilling moment through the Like a Girl campaign. How did the Chosen campaign compare to your experience at Procter & Gamble? The Like a Girl campaign at Procter & Gamble was the most rewarding project I was involved with in my corporate career. We literally changed culture. But the Chosen experience, as a result of just our faithfulness to pray for something, our willingness to wait in the desert for three years with no, nothing to show for it, but knowing that God cares and loves these children more than we do, mm-hmm. to then see an idea come to life. I just saw the hand of God. It's without a doubt the most rewarding experience of my life. If you were not the president of World Vision, do you feel like the chosen project would have happened? That's a great question. I think God can use, I don't know how to answer that question. (laughs) Because God, like I said, this is God's ministry. He will figure out a way, okay, to uh, whether he would have chosen this specific campaign in this specific way, I don't know. But I do know this. If I had not had the Like a Girl experience, I would not have put a team in place to try to crack the next breakthrough idea at World Vision. That I know for sure. 
I think God chose you. <laughs> Perhaps he did. <laughs> Well, what do you think about that, JJ? I love it so much. Over the course of my career, I've had the privilege to connect over 2,000 children with sponsors through World Vision. I've even run a half marathon with Team World Vision. That's a big deal. I know, because I hate running. I know how much you hate running. <laughs> That's how much I love World Vision and their mission. And a few years ago, we even featured World Vision's clean water projects in your music video for This Little Light of Mine. That's right. And Lucy and Nora were in the video with mm -hmm. us. So that started a conversation where we were explaining to our girls that for many, many, many people in the world, access to clean water is not as simple as just turning on the tap. And the average amount that mostly women and girls need to walk to get water is six kilometers. And then the water that they're collecting often makes them sick. Yeah. Basically, since we had that conversation with our kids, every time they pray for a meal, they say, dear God, thank you for our food and for healthy water. And it's just the sweetest. It totally is. Every meal. I love it. <laughs> Well, you may have heard Edgar reference his Like a Girl experience with Procter & Gamble. In order for you to hear about that, we need to travel back in time to the year 2013. Wah, JJ. Wah, 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 no, wah, no, wah, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wrapping up the time machine. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> JJ, what were you doing in 2013? Well, we were on the road quite a bit. We were, and we had two little, little kids. And by on the road, what I mean is we were flying in the air. a lot of places. <laughs> yes, playing lots of shows and flying on lots of airplanes. And on one particular flight, you said, hey, we should write a children's book. Why don't you try to do that, JJ? And so I didn't have any paper, so I pulled out the in-flight magazine, and I used a Sharpie, and I wrote on top of an advertisement, just like the initial idea for our children's book, The Golden Feather. Do you get very many moments of inspiration on airplanes? The answer is no. No, you do not. <laughs> Most of the time, trying you're trying to avoid the idea of even thinking while you're on an airplane. It's like, turn. Yeah, I don't really like flying. It's so boring. This is still for so long. It <laughs> <laughs> sits down. They don't let you get up. I know. So this was a unique experience because... I actually made something. You, yeah, you did something. <laughs> well, Edgar had his little moment of inspiration for the Chosen campaign. And actually, he's going to tell us about another moment of inspiration that happened for him on a different airplane. Wow. I know. They're like inspiration... Tubes Capsules. in the sun, in the sky. <laughs> wow. Inspirational sky tubes. All right. Edgar Sand Sandoval going into my inspirational sky tube. <laughs> I like to think that while you were coming up with the idea for the golden feather, Edgar was simultaneously having his brainstorming moment as well. In a different airplane? Yes. In the sky? Maybe you were both on the same airplane and <gasps> didn't know it. 
Maybe it was just a special inspirational airplane. Whoa, they should market that. I think we're onto something. (laughs) Forget the podcast. We're going to start our own airline company. Yeah, well, here's one thing I know for sure. What's that? Edgar's inspiration was not a children's book, but it did involve inspiring children. Let's hear about it, JJ. Act two, like a girl. Culture-shaping moments often originate in the most unexpected places. As Edgar and his team from Procter & Gamble traveled the world, they began to notice an unsettling pattern. I felt that I had the ability as an executive after spending 20 years, nearly 20 years with the company, to really blend purpose with profits. And uh, at the time, I was leading the feminine care division at P&G, and we really put a lot of attention into research and interviewing our consumers and learning about their lives and making sure that our products met all of their needs. But one of the things that became really apparent to me is that whether we were talking to girls in a slum in Mumbai or in a wealthy area of Beijing or in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or in New York City, regardless of who we were speaking with, young girls, they had a lot of dreams, they had a lot of confidence, they were playing sports, they were doing all kinds of things. And then once puberty hit, there was this common thread of a beginning of loss of confidence in their dreams. And um, we thought that was a big problem. We wanted to do something about it. And so I was coming back from the south of France. I was coming back from the 2013 International Advertising Festival Hmm. called the Cannes Advertising Festival. And I had just witnessed uh, and seen some of the best advertising in the world, some of the most creative minds in the world. In fact, there was one set of exhibitions that just blew me away uh, with creativity. And and I thought to myself, you know, we're not really doing world-class work Hmm. yet. And I would love to do world-class work. Hmm. Uh, And I think world-class work needs to be work that changes the world, not just drive sales and share. And so on that airplane, I just felt that we had all the ingredients to challenge ourselves to do something something great. Um, I asked my team, I said, you know, I think we need to just come up with a new advertising campaign, a new marketing campaign. I wrote that creative brief and I just, it had two lines. We're going to launch a new advertising campaign. It's going to help us build sales, yes, but most importantly, it's going to help us change the world one girl at a time. Mm-hmm. The advertising agency was, they were so excited to get a creative brief that only had two lines. <laughs> 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 and they jumped on it and said, yeah, let's do this. Now, Coming up with breakthrough ideas is not an easy thing to Mm -hmm. do. So you have to put a lot of effort, a lot of discipline into it. And I'd say that for, you know, for about a year, we had nothing to show for it. I was getting a lot of presentations, a lot of storyboards on on ideas that I thought were good, but they were just good. They weren't great. Mm. And uh, I'll never forget at one point, the creative team, after many presentations, the creative director said to me, Edgar, since when did doing something like a girl become an insult? And boy, you know it when something happens to you inside of you. And you know, I, I think like the hairs on my arms were standing up when she asked that question.
I'm a father of four kids and three of them are girls. And I just thought, wow, that is so powerful. And that was the time where the Like Girl campaign idea began to take life. When they said that, was it just an off-the-cuff remark or was it an official pitch? It was an official pitch. It was the beginning of the pitch. We had not seen any creative storyboards. We had not seen any ideas. Hmm. It was just the setup prior to seeing the creative stimuli. Hmm. But it was so powerful. It was, And really, the learning there is that great creative, great advertising campaigns start with what the organizations, the brands really believe in. And at PNG, we believe that girls are awesome, that they have unlimited potential, and that some of the social cultural norms that limit the, their dreams and their potential should not stand. And that's why we decided to take a public stance on literally changing the meaning of a phrase. Can you just kind of give a brief summary of how the video unfolds? The video starts by asking grown-ups, grown-up men and women, to do things like a girl. Just simply, it's just a prompt. Would you throw like a girl? Would you run like a girl? Would you do X like a girl? And consistently every time, the adults do things in a way that makes and pokes fun at doing something like a girl. They do things in a, almost like a derogatory way. So if you are, let's say I say fight like a girl, they would fight really like, you know. Kind of flailing their hands a little bit or something. Yeah, they just move their hands. So throw like a girl, they'll do a small throw that, you know, is maybe a foot away from you. Everybody will laugh at it, right? That's the other thing. Everybody will laugh about it. Even the people doing it will laugh about it. But then we brought in young girls, uh, 10, 12, 13-year-olds, and we asked them to just basically, hey, run like a girl, fight like a girl, throw like a girl. And you would see them basically put their whole heart into it. Hmm. They would run as fast as they could. They would throw as long as they could. And it was just really striking to see the difference between what, how the grown-ups were portraying doing something like a girl and to see the actual girls do it themselves. Yeah. And it was very, very emotional to recognize that all of us somehow had played a role in turning the phrase like a girl into an insult because let's be frank, at some point, all of us laughed about it. And in fact, that was the beauty of the video. When we were editing the video, Part of my desire to the editors was, let's make sure that we get people to be themselves as they watch this ad. What does that mean? Well, that means they're going to see somebody do something like a girl in a derogatory way, and 90% of the viewers laugh about it. Hmm. And, then they, and then we see the young girls do it the right way, and we all feel convicted. We all feel that we, were, we have been part of the problem. Hmm. I think that was the emotional brilliance of the ad is that the audience was engaged, the audience was made complicit in the issue because we all have been one way or another, but then we were all given a chance to, for redemption, <laughs> to declare that doing something like a girl is something amazing. Yeah, I love that. It's like you, you kind of demonstrate that the audience, like most of us, are guilty of being part of the problem, but then it also empowers us to be part of the solution. That's right. I can talk to you about 
the number of awards that the Like a Girl campaign won. I can talk to you about the million of times that it was viewed. It was even aired during the Super Bowl. Imagine that, a feminine care brand ad in the Super Bowl. Hmm. I can tell you that it was voted one of the top three commercials in the 50-year history of the Super Bowl. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, but what is most rewarding for me is the fact that before the campaign was launched, only 19% of people thought that doing something like a girl was a compliment. Mm. And a year after the campaign, that number had increased to 79%. Oh, my goodness. What? That was really rewarding. That's amazing. What did that mean for you in the years following that campaign, being a part of something like that? It was so amazing to see societal norms being changed by advertising, right? And um, the company now has a term called being a force for good. That's what that campaign was, a force for good. And this campaign united people of all walks of life. Mm. (laughs) We had everybody get behind it regardless of any sort of uh, affiliation. Hmm. And so that was, really, that was really cool to witness. The, the interesting thing is, remember, I had been at the uh, Advertising Awards, International Awards in Cannes in 2013. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, uh, this campaign literally swept all of those awards. Oh it swept all of, the, all of the Cannes Lions Awards. Wow. And for folks who may not be familiar with the, with the Cannes Advertising Award, they're called the Lions, and the Lions are, for the advertising industry, what the Oscars are for the filmmaking industry. Wow. You know, it swept all the awards. It was it's the most awarded campaign in the history of Procter & Gamble. But the interesting thing is that uh, I was not there. I was not there. At the time, I was actually, <laughs> I was actually carrying furniture carrying my own furniture because I was about to start working for World Vision. Wow. And I was moving into our temporary home uh, here in the Pacific Northwest when my phone started blowing up. And that's because halfway across the world in the south of France, my <laughs> former colleagues at P&G were excitedly texting me the news that our advertising campaign was sweeping the Advertising Festival of Creativity. Wow. And I'll never forget getting those texts uh, because instead of being dressed up in a sharp tuxedo, (laughs) ready to move to the main stage to collect the awards and to be the toast of the French Riviera, (laughs) there I was, sweaty and grubby in suburban Seattle, about to move a chair, Mm. then a couch, and then a coffee table. And if I'm honest with myself, at that time, there was a part of me that would have liked to have found a way to be in Cannes collecting all those trophies. Mm. But in my heart, I had this peace and this joy that surpasses understanding because I knew that I was exactly where God wanted me to be. Well, JJ, after hearing Edgar's story with the Like a Girl campaign, doesn't it make sense now to hear how that experience influenced his involvement with the Chosen campaign? Totally. Because they could have played it safe, but in both experiences, taking a risk really paid off. And so many more lives have been impacted because Edgar was a part of a team who chose to dream big. Half the battle is coming up with a great idea, 
And then the other half, maybe 80% is actually implementing the great idea. So 50%. 50% plus 80%. And then there's an extra. And then subtract the time that you wasted on the bad ideas. <laughs> Musician math strikes again. Well, we're on the final stretch. Act one of Edgar's story begins back in 1997. And you know what happened in 1997, JJ? What happened? Toy Story released. Yay! The movie. I love that movie. When I saw Toy Story, it was at a movie theater in Arizona called the Cine Capri. Ooh, fancy. Uh-huh. It, it, it was fancy. Like, they had a giant curtain that covered the screen. Oh, cool. And then before the movie started, the curtain would, like, open up. And, like, you'd see the previews. And then before the main event happened... The feature film. The curtain would open up a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Plus an extra five inches! <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. The song, You've Got a Friend in Me, really was a good move. I know. Randy Newman. When in doubt, hire Randy Newman to score your movie. Well... While Woody and Buzz were busy trying to escape Andy's evil neighbor, Sid. Boo. Boo, Sid. Edgar was on the verge of a life-shaping moment. Let's hear what happened. Act one, love your neighbor. You're about to hear how a simple act of kindness changed Edgar's life forever. This act includes a phone call no one wants to receive, a toddler-sized table, and a bicycle. Here's Edgar. When I joined Procter & Gamble, I had just graduated from an Ivy League school. I had a great job. We were getting ready to buy our house. We had the car. I mean, I was literally living the American dream. It was a completely different life than the one I had lived years earlier, coming back to the U.S. with nothing, literally $50 in one pocket in my my American passport in the other pocket wow. and having to work minimum wage jobs and fast food restaurants. And so I had arrived at a place where I felt I'm living the dream. Hmm. And I, I'll never forget, I was, I was sitting in my office when I got a call from my wife, Lisa. Um, we were expecting our second child and there I am at P&G, uh, pick up the phone and Lisa says that she thinks there's something wrong with the baby, something is not right, and that she needs to go to the hospital. So I immediately got up and went to meet her at the hospital. When I got to the room where she was waiting, I remember my son, Edgar Jr., was with her. And at the time, he was probably 18 months old, so he has no clue what's going on. The doctors told us that uh, they were going to need to deliver this baby earlier and that there was something not completely right with the baby's development. They took Lisa. The doctor came out and told me that she was born, she was alive, but she had a 30% chance of survival. happened is there had been a loss of oxygen to the brain. It's what's medically known as cerebral palsy, which is really just a localized brain injury. That was a really hard time in my life. It was completely unexpected. It was not in my plans. So this was 
a really, really difficult chapter in our lives. And so you're there in the hospital. Your wife is giving birth by cesarean, right? Yeah. And where's your little boy? So hours went by, and then I, I remember, where, where is my little boy? Where is Edgar Jr.? And so I went out into the waiting room, opened the door to the waiting room, and it was in the evening, it was 6 or 7 p.m., and uh, I had gotten to the hospital probably around 1 or 2 p.m. Hmm. And the waiting room was almost empty, except that in one corner there was one of those tiny little round tables with tiny little chairs just for little kids and there he was he was sitting in one of those tiny chairs playing with something i guess some legos or something and sitting next to him was my boss and uh and i remember how before i left to go to the hospital i had just stopped by his office and and told him that something was wrong with with our baby and that i needed to go to the hospital he told me, well, I just thought you don't have any family nearby, so I just thought I'd come and see what I could do to help. And it turns out he ended up babysitting <laughs> Edgar Jr., which was, to me, it was just truly remarkable that your boss would get up in the middle of the day with all the demands on his time and just see how he could help. I had never seen anything like that before in my life. Corporate America is super intense. You literally, you don't have any any free time. You're always on. There's always something that needs to be attended to. Mm. And for him to just say, okay, well, but there's something more important here in the balance. Uh, that planted a seed in my mind and in my heart. What does he know? What does he have? Why is he that way? Mm. Um, when I think about Steve and what he did by coming to the hospital, I think about the real meaning of witnessing to the love of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, he, he didn't come to the hospital to preach the gospel to me in words necessarily. He came simply to love your neighbor. In that way, he was witnessing to the love of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ by loving your neighbor. I am the recipient of this love that then provokes a question in me of the hope that lives within him. Hmm. What would make someone do that? Yeah, exactly. The question goes something like this. is like, well, what does he have? Well, you know, I want some of that. I want, I want to be like him. What does he have? And the answer to the question is he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what followers of Jesus Christ do. They love your neighbor. And yes, when the time is appropriate and the conditions are appropriate and the relationships are strong, then they preach a sermon, okay, so that we can be, so that we can be open to receiving the sermon. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. And a couple of years later, the two of us attended a Christian conference where I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Yeah, and I think it's so beautiful that Steve's simple action of coming to the hospital and being a good neighbor, loving his neighbor, has now eventually led to you working for an organization that is basically showing love to our neighbors throughout the world every single day. Amen to that. I can say with all conviction, I would not be at World Vision today 
if Steve hadn't come to the hospital in 1997. My very first uh, trip with World Vision to Zambia, I went with my, at the time, my 15-year-old daughter, Natalia. We went to this community where I met a grandmother who was taking care of seven of her grandchildren by herself. And these were young kids, I would say, between the ages of probably four to 13 And one of them was a child with significant disabilities who was in a wheelchair. And what really struck me about that experience is we were there to meet her, to understand more about her needs. But we had already been told that she had been praying for a bicycle for a long time because to care for all all those kids, she'd have to walk long distances to either fetch the water or to the market and she was, it was just a lot for her to travel those distances by foot. The only thing she would pray for is a bicycle. Well, the night before we went to see her, my daughter Natalia actually assembled a bicycle for her at the World Vision Zambia office. Mm. And when we gave her the bike, she literally started sobbing and crying and lifting her hands and basically thanking the Lord for an answer mm-hmm. prayer. You would think we were just giving her a Rolls Royce or a Jaguar, <laughs> but no, she was just elated, grateful that she now had a bicycle. And coming back home to the U.S., I remember just reflecting on how challenging life must be for her, right? Um, caring for seven kids, one with significant disabilities, with no means of transportation in a place where getting from one place to the other is very difficult and treacherous, where literally they put their lives on, on the line if they have to go through the bush to get to fetch the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just reminded me that despite my own situation here at home with my daughters, her life was multiples more difficult than mine. Mm-hmm. You were afforded specific compassion as a father and then specific leadership skills because of your position at Procter & Gamble. What is your general reflection on the path that led you to where you are today? Now that I have the sort of Monday morning quarterback view I look back at my life and I see that there was always a purpose. There was always a destination, so to speak. I think now being at World Vision and doing this work, it was part of my purpose all along. And the Lord has orchestrated the pieces. Sometimes I have maybe resisted, but he's found a way to align my life with his greater purpose. Whether I've been in the midst of a valley or you know, at the top of the mountain. I believe in my heart that the Lord has been with me. He has been by my side all along, weaving each and every experience into his grander plan. 
and ultimately the life that I have today, I think it's a direct outcome of the Lord's will, regardless of how uncomfortable we may feel. I'm fairly sure that when Edgar's boss decided to drive himself to the hospital, he had no idea what kind of impact he would make on Edgar's life. I definitely think you're right. And one of the reasons why we have these conversations is to remind ourselves that it's often the little moments of doing the next right thing that can have an impact beyond anything that you imagined. Big love happens in the small moments. Oh, wow. Did you just come up with that? (laughs) Write that down fast. (laughs) Well, we're super close to the end of this episode. But first, we have a final segment we call... Let's Rewind the Tape! Because of his role as president of World Vision, Edgar was able to dream up and implement the Chosen campaign. But thousands of lives would not have been impacted by Chosen if not for Edgar's experience with the Like a Girl campaign. And the selfless act of Edgar's boss, Steve, to show him what loving your neighbors really looks like in a hospital waiting room in 1997. To find out more about World Vision and the Chosen campaign, visit worldvision.org. This episode of Instrumental was produced by me, JJ Heller. And me, Dave Heller. Our theme music is my song, Big Love, Small Moments. That I helped write. (laughs) To find out more about me, listen to more of my songs, or watch my music videos, please visit jjheller.com. That's two letter J's, H-E-L-L-E-R.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Instrumental. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.